Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori, which is a carbon removal marketplace based in Seattle, Washington. And today I have with me Sally Morgan, co-author of The Climate Change Garden, down-to-earth advice for growing a resilient garden. Thanks for being here, Sally. I'm delighted. Thank you for inviting me. I'm I'm so happy to have you. I don't know that we've done a show quite like this before. You're a longtime gardener and educator, and I imagine you've seen quite a lot of climate change just through your work and how you interact with plants. Is that a true assumption or is it maybe less than maybe I think? Um, no, I think you're spot on. I think as gardeners, um, we're at the forefront of climate change and experiencing what's happening firsthand. So um, we tend to pick up on things. And I'm I'm quite a sort of note taker and a diary maker in my gardening. So I can look back over my gardening records and sort of think, hmm, that didn't happen there before and things like that. So, uh, yes, um, I'm, I'm quite good at that type of record keeping. And, and we are seeing changes and we're seeing changes more quickly than I've seen perhaps in my lifetime. So interesting times. Is it something as simple as some months may be sunnier or wetter or drier than than previous years or pests or birds arriving at different times? Or is, is this stuff akin to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it will be uh, unusual weather patterns. So we're getting more of these extreme weather events. Um, and by extreme, I'm thinking uh, lots of rain in a very short period of time. So I know several North American cities in 2022 had more than six inches in a 24 hour period. And that is extreme. Uh, we've had the same over here just a couple of weeks ago. Um, very heavy rainfall, months worth of rain in a few hours. And then um, when I look back, I'm seeing things flowering as, uh, perhaps earlier. Uh, and we know that records in the UK are showing that our spring is advancing by five days every 10 years. So that that is quite some change. And, and so it's those types of indicators that tell us that not all is, is the same as it used to be. On a previous show, uh, a guest had mentioned that Southern England has a growing uh, viticulture scene and winemaking, which I think I think that should be a shocking fact. That is not something that I associate with Southern England. But then again, you note in the book too that this in the Roman times there was winemaking in Southern England. So maybe it's not nearly as dramatic as it appears, or is it? Um, well, yeah, 2000 years ago, Romans are over here, they did grow vines, they were growing lentils and other Mediterranean crops. Um, and then we had a little ice age um, that lasted and we have historic images of people uh, skating on ice fairs on the Thames. And then you have some unusual weather events in North America where there were huge dumps of snow, you know, 
48, 56 inches of snow overnight, so some mega events. But that was changing more slowly. So it took hundreds of years for the weather changes to fully kick in. And it took hundreds of years to come out of those changes. And I think what makes this period, the last 100 years, particularly different is the rate of change and the difficulty of the natural world keeping up with those changes. So, yeah, we've seen it all before, but not quite as quickly. And in terms of vineyards in, in southern England, yeah, we, we have lots of vineyards. Um, in fact, lots of French champagne houses are buying up bits of Kent and Sussex because they know that in 20, 30 years time that the Champagne area of France will get warmer. And there is the same geology that exists on both sides of the channel. So the chalk, chalky soils that are south of Paris um, pop under the channel and pop up in Kent. So uh, from viticulture point of view, the, the conditions are virtually the same. And so they are preparing for 20 or 30 years time. Um, and we've got some cracking, can't call it champagne now. Um, we have some great English sparkling wine. <laughs> wow. I have a, a gardener who helps around our house and he's predicting that Seattle is going to face a much more Mediterranean climate as things go forward, which is also just a scary sentence. But as a gardener, I'm also thinking uh, several years and even decades into the future of what trees should I be planting? What kinds of, of plants should I be preparing for to be resilient in the future? And this is why your book was so appealing to me is because there's seemingly a, an endless amount of work and forethought that should go into which plants and which kinds of spaces you're ecologically designing and working with. And uh, it's pretty daunting to think that far ahead or that we need to think that far ahead. Yeah, I, it's really difficult. And I was actually in Seattle um, back in February for the Northwest Pacific um, Flower Festival. Um, and that type of topic cropped up. Um, yes, Seattle is predicted along with the rest of the North Pacific coast, so a Pacific coast to, to warm up. Um, I think actually if I was in Seattle, a thing that worries me mostly is the threat from flooding, but we can come back to that. Um, but in terms of choosing a plant, I mean, a plant that's going to be there for 50 to 100 years or longer, because some of the forestry rotations can be hundreds of years. Um, and it's really difficult to, to pick a tree that will work today and will work in 50 years time. And so this is where I feel um, some of the more exciting research is being done at the moment, looking at the genetics of trees. Um, and so a lot of uh, British Columbian foresters are looking at um, some of their seedlings and are experimenting where they're planting them across a huge range from California right to the Alaskan border to see which of those seedlings do best in the more extreme climates and use those as their genetic source. So if you want to stick to the same varieties, same species, you might want to look at the genetics, look at their distribution and try and find um, a seed material or propagation material that comes from a more southerly area. So perhaps it's still got the genes which will allow it to survive more extreme climate conditions um, rather than plant non-natives, which does get people quite excited. Um, but it's also important in our urban areas. And again, I was wandering around Seattle looking at the trees and there's not a huge variety of trees being grown. 
And this is true of cities around the world. Um, and there is a, a very good academic from Sweden called um, Henrik Sojman, um, whose work really appeals to me. And he's been looking at European cities and North American cities and looking at the range of trees. And city designers tend to stick to a few tried and tested species. So when I was in London yesterday, there's lots of London pine, lots of native lime trees, but there's not a huge variety. So when the new pest arrives or the conditions change, so I'm thinking mm, Japanese beetles, uh, citrus beetles over here, longhorn beetles, when they arrive, um, they could wipe out entire populations of our urban trees. So we need variety there and we need to plan for the future. And one of those ways to plan, perhaps, is to have more variety in our gardens, in our community spaces. So if one fails, we may have a backup, um, as well as thinking ahead to which species. Uh, and again, when I look at his research, he may often re recommend that you don't use the current species that grows well, but you look at a close relative that maybe is better suited. So for us in the UK, we have lots of native pie, uh, lime trees, which are going to be suffering in 20 to 30 years time. But the, um, the silver lime, which is more common in Mediterranean areas, is more adaptable to warmer summers. So maybe we should be growing a, summer, uh, a silver lime rather than a native lime. And there's lots of North American species where you can do the same thing. You can switch the species. But as soon as you start talking non-native, um, People get very excited. I, from what I've read in gardening discourse, and you're obviously much closer to this than I am, but I feel a hybridized approach uh, has been popular. People know that the genie's out of the bottle for non-native species, and it's more a question of adaptation and how to do it in a smart way rather than to take a very strongly ideological position. Does that map with your experience or not so much? Yeah, I mean, um, I think when the conditions are changing and they're changing so quickly and the non the native species do not survive, then you can't continue to can try and grow them. You can ameliorate the environment to see if they will survive. Um, but other than looking at their genetics and trying to widen their gene pool to bring in, as I said, um, propagative material from more southerly region, we do have to also try a non-native to see whether that will survive or just simply... I think diversity, um, my own garden, I'm trying to make it more diverse um, from all the planting through from the vegetables through to trees in the hopes that when conditions become more extreme and, you know, we've got flipping at the moment, we've got hot summer, dry summers, and then we get these really cold and then wet, mild weather. And, and I need a really resilient plant that can cope with that all those flips from one side to the other. So my my drought tolerant planting won't work this winter. We've had lots of rain. There's lots of snails out at the moment and it, it didn't suit them. And so we need to have that diversity, I think, across um, our plantings in um, community spaces and in our gardens to hedge our bets so that something hopefully will be able to cope with what's thrown at it. Which kinds of plants can tolerate that? extreme range of uh, rain and drought. Are, are there certain families that do well or how should one think about that? It's, it's, it's 
difficult to actually pick out ones. And what I've been advising people um, is to, when you look on labels at garden centers and when you're buying a plant, it often comes to the label that sort of says good for sun, good for shade, uh, good for acidic soils, alkaline soils, um, frost harvey or whatever. I'm looking for that plant in the short term while we're in this transition period where things flip from one side to another. I'm looking for a, a really quite resilient plant and ticks all those boxes. And so I'm looking for a plant that in, in UK, for example, will grow from the south right through to Scotland and you see it in every garden centre. And it's probably not a very exciting plant, but it, it will grow in the sun, it will grow in the shade, it will grow in all soil types. Um, it will cope with drought, but it will also cope with waterlogging. And, and that is the type of um, adaptable plant that you need. Um, but if any of your listeners are interested in this, again, going back to Henrik Sojman, he has got an amazing little manual downloadable online that he has looked at um, not only the drought tolerance of many species of trees that we see in our gardens and cities, but also their resilience to waterlogging. Because when we have four or five inches of rain in a very short period of time, the ground gets waterlogged and plants have to cope with wet feet for wet roots for six or seven hours, possibly several days. So you need a plant that can cope with that and being cold and wet in winter as well as hot and dry. And that's a big ask. Um, and so these adaptable plants are out there and it's finding the one that suits your area. So Henrik is a great one to have a look at is in the first instance. And then as I say, look at the label, look at things that grow in all environments and the hopes that um, it can cope. Um, and it'll be a very generalist, uh, adaptable plant um, that um, will will sort of deal with with everything. So maybe not the specialist, it's going to be more of a generalist to my mind. Ah, interesting set of ideas here. In addition to plant choice, it seems that one of the main things one can do to be resilient is to have healthy soil uh, and to have just a healthy um, ecosystem in one's yard um, that would better allow for plants of all varieties to flourish. Is that is that the right way to understand this? Yeah, um, soil is gardener's most important asset. And um, I think we treat it quite badly in many cases. Um, I go into garden centers and I see rows and rows of chemicals that you can apply to your soil and you're gonna kill that pest and you're going to kill that weed. Um, and then you've got to fertilize the plants so they grow really hard and big and lush, which means they're more vulnerable to pests. So a healthy soil for me is one that um, has rich soil life because there's this most amazing connection of plants with the soil life around their roots, um, more than we really understand. Uh, and when I read some of the work, um, like Merlin, Merlin Seldrake, um, when he looks at mushrooms and he looks at um, fungal hyphae growing through the soil, all those plants are in connection with each other and they're communicating and a healthy plant is feeding the soil and that soil life is then taking the nutrients and making them available to the plants. It's a two way exchange um, and benefit. And so for me, when I'm looking after my soil, it is uh, not disturbing it, not putting my fork in too often. So a lot of no-till gardening that we see in, in farming, but equally in the garden to leave the soil as undisturbed as possible, even when you're growing vegetables, which I know is 
it's tricky for some people um but to to keep that soil intact to keep the soil life um intact around our plants to build the organic matter so to mulch to add material to the top of the soil and that will protect the soil from the extremes of weather from the sun um or help absorb water will keep the soil cooler um, and if it's organic it's going to be helping in sequestration of carbon which is all going to help with climate change as well so soil health absolutely key and if you can get that right um, then you'll find that your plants are more resilient it's when they get stressed they run out of water um, maybe a pest comes along and they're they're threatened and stressed that's when they're more vulnerable to climate change and and the heat or the wet so keep that soil healthy undisturbed lots of soil life lots of earthworms um, and you're halfway there I think to to having healthy plants that are in a better position to cope with what the weather throws at them so listeners don't just need to go out and start planting olive trees and fig trees right away. There, there are some intermediate steps that are maybe advisable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do have an olive tree, um, but I have to watch the frost. I mean, very few of those Mediterranean plants are um, frost hardy. Um, and so you might get away with it two or three years out of five. But then the nature of climate change is that going to throw the unexpected at you. So you could easily have a very late frost. Um, back in February, after I visited Seattle, I popped down to Atlanta and I was down on the coast at Charleston and Savannah. And they had had part of that big, heavy frost and they were looking at all of their Heart, uh, tropical planting down there um, and the camellias had all been hit by the frost, which was totally unexpected. They hadn't had that for years. Um, but you get these quirky meteorological events where that big pressure from the Arctic moved across North America and it went down as far as um, Georgia and delivered, you know, days of frost. And so we could easily get trapped into thinking, oh, we've got lovely Mediterranean climate, isn't it gorgeous? And then, you know, it hits us in April or May or something with a really unseasonal cold frost. Um, and we have minus 10 here which we shouldn't have done. Um, I'm in a, in a zone eight to nine, so we really shouldn't have had that degree of, of frost, but we did, and we had it for five or six days where the damage was done um, because of the length of time. And it followed a very wet, mild period, so I don't think my plants had toughened up much, and then it, it was really extreme for them in the, in the cold. So that's what we're dealing with at the moment in this transition period of we're not quite sure what to expect. So resilience and resilient plants are the answer for me anyway. Have you thought much about the intersection of animal agriculture? Like I keep chickens. I aspirationally would like to keep bees at some point. Um, how might this make one's garden more resilient or does it have less uh, effect? Oh, I know. I'm sure that, you know, for me, I have ducks wandering around my garden. Um, they are very small on these miniature ducks. And they're very good at slug patrol, so I don't mind that. And they do leave a few droppings and things. So I think there's lots to learn from farming, actually. And a lot of the stuff that's in our book comes from my experience in organic farming in the UK. Um, I own an organic farm, a hundred acre, um, mostly grassland farm, which I'm not doing too much to at the moment. I am <clears throat> topic of the word, you know, rewilding it um and we just take grass and uh i learn a lot from growers and farmers who are 
trying to do this for a living and there's a big overlap between um, what they're doing and what I can do and I and I, I'm picking it up from the diversity in the crops and things um, I'm doing away slightly with crop rotations in my vegetable area because I don't think that's the right answer necessarily um, and I do think you know to bring livestock in um, to have the chickens wandering around or my ducks or my turkeys um, it's not only pleasant and relaxing, but it's also um, they have a benefit as well. So there's lots to learn um, from some of the more innovative um, growers and farmers um, that we can apply in our gardens. Is crop rotation perhaps just less useful at that small scale? Is it hard to tell a difference in the soil quality season after season? Um, I think it does. Um, I have been looking to the east and to Korean natural gardening and Japanese style of natural agriculture, where they don't disturb the soil for years on end and they grow the same crops year in, year out, and they see their soil improve and they see their, um, their crop yields improved. But I think for me, with growing vegetables, I'm not about the yield. And this is what worries me to a certain extent. It's all about productivity. And for me as a gardener, it's not. It's about health and healthy plants. But with the crop rotation, um, I get a bit confused now because when I look at soil health, I am trying to build soil life and I'm trying to not disturb it. And I'm trying to get a good relationship between the plants and the soil and the soil life. So there is this lovely mutual relationship. But if I'm going to pull them up every year and grow something different in their place, then those relationships have got to rebuild. So I don't I can't quite get my head around why that is a benefit other than perhaps if there's a pest problem. But I don't tend to have too many pest problems because, again, I'm pretty relaxed and I like natural predators and I don't freak out and get the chemicals out as soon as I see a pest in the garden. Um, so I think for me, my rotation is quite relaxed uh, and I do what, what we call a polyculture approach, which is to mix and match all the different crops, which I know is not applicable on a much larger scale if I was market gardening or, or growing vegetables on field scale. But for me, I can mix and match. So a row of carrots, a row of beetroots, a row of onions, lots and lots of flowers to bring in the predators and the pollinators in a small space I have diversity and we go back to that word again for me resilience is diversity and, and increasingly um, amongst organic farmers in the UK they are mixing up their crops they're using cover crops um, and they're using um, flowers to bring in the predators and so they too are beginning to do that but on a much larger scale um, and to improve their soils by not digging them so I think the no-till movement is really um, enlarging and there is some evidence now to show that it does sequester more carbon and it locks it up in the soil and as soon as you put your fork in and you turn that soil that organic matter is exposed to the soil and it can oxidize and it goes back out again so um, for, for me in climate change to leave my soils as undisturbed as possible and to keep them covered and I quite like living mulches I like covers I like weeds <laughs> um, but I like to keep my soil covered by something all winter, um, be it a weed or a crop, so that that soil is continually being fed by a living root. So we go back to those roots, the soil, the soil life, and those living roots are feeding my root, my soil over winter. And then I will finish off that crop, maybe kill them off with a piece of plastic, cover it over, or weed them out or hoe them, um, or just, just live with them in some cases. 
So um, yeah, I'm a bit relaxed in my gardening. <laughs> I like the relaxed approach. One of the early books I read was Masanobu Fukuoka's One Straw Revolution, uh, where with Japanese permaculture, a strong focus on, I think he calls it lazy man's farming or something like that in there, but yeah. very much akin to the chop and drop and let stuff cover the soil. There's with gardening, gardening has an image perhaps of being a, a fussy discipline of one where there's orders imposed upon things. There's a unnatural cleanliness that is trying to uh, be forced upon nature. And uh, I'm not sure how gardening got like that, but it's nice to see some pushback. Do you have any idea the origin of that cultivation style? Oh, I suspect it was the good old Victorians. Um, <laughs> the likely um, target? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think if you look further back in history, um, if I look back to our Elizabethan age, uh, 15th, 16th century, you know, cottage gardening, they used to grow to eat and they would have all sorts of medicinal plants in their garden as well as edibles. Um, and then I think you'll get this orderly approach in the walled gardens of the Victorian era, so 1820s onwards. Um, and, and you see that in some of the big estates. Um, in New England and um, Virginia, um, where some of the, you know, typical ward gardens, um, we have orderly um, arrows of vegetables. And I think, you know, when you're picking vegetables for large numbers of people and you're selling them, orderly is quite good because you can harvest them quite quickly. Um, but I think that approach to tidy gardens and neat lawns and everything pruned within inch of its life um, is very Victorian and, and then very um, sort of uptight, uh, sort of interwar years and things. Um, but actually, I was I was quite relieved. I went to Chelsea Flower Show yesterday um, and there we were seeing lots of recycled concrete aggregates and things in the garden, less soil. Uh, quite a lot of weeds, which was lovely. Um, and I get hung up on this, this idea of what, why is the plant a weed? Because you don't like it, it's not supposed to be there. But who made that decision originally that that plant's a weed, but that plant's really nice and we're going to grow that. So I quite like dandelions and things. I mean, nettles have a use, um, so many weeds and medicinal. People and make so all the time out of them too. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're, they bring diversity. And for me, when I look at floral diversity in my garden, you know, weeds contribute so much to that diversity, particularly at the beginning and the end of the growing season. And um, I want something for those pollinators to find when they come into my garden. And so to have those little weeds, little tiny weeds, which are so easy to pull up if you don't want them, but just leave them there if they're not doing any harm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I hope we are moving away from this neat and tidy, bare soil approach um and that we're going to keep everything a little bit more covered and relaxed and in connection with each other because i think you know with the with a living cover living mulch over the soil all those plants are in connection which is which is great lovely communities are developing which makes them more resilient um so the, the messy gardeners are the ones which are going to win out when it comes to climate change <laughs> it seems partly a factor of scale where you you talk about uh plantation and cash cropping as an ideology or a farming style and i think this applies pretty neatly to how urban areas use trees as you mentioned uh, there was some stat in there in your book about how 
Uh, Helsinki is something like 50% linden trees and is quite vulnerable to a pest that would target linden trees that may may arrive, will likely arrive at some point. Uh, it's very easy for a city, I'm sure, to manage and to specialize in a small set of trees, a small number of species to manage. Can you imagine a city? I'm not sure cities are that good at managing things in general, but if they also had to get good at knowing hundreds or thousands of species in a messy gardening style, would this be manageable from an administrative point of view? Um, I think it starts with the training. I think it comes from that man, that mindset that a lot of the traditional um, city um, landscapers and people that have been trained 30 years, 20, 30, 40 years ago come through this sort of mindset of uh, pruning, uh, mowing, using power tools, using lots of chemicals, keep everything neat and tidy, nobody wants any weeds on the uh, walkways and things. Um, but I think the new generation, the hope, the new generation of horticulturalists who are going to move into landscaping and maintenance and things, maybe have a little bit more of a, a more open minded approach and that will understand that they need this diversity and they need this flexibility in, in spaces. Um, but increasingly now we are seeing that we need the ecology in our cities and we also need the ecology in terms of rain gardens in cities. So when we have heavy rain events, we need these temporary areas where the water can collect, where we have vegetation. And again, uh, Washington's quite good about having rain gardens that takes that overflow from the hard surfaces of the city. Uh, Chicago's quite good. Um, I'm seeing it increasingly in London and cities now where we have those areas of vegetation that can take that uh, excess water and there they need a variety of lots of different plants and lots of different trees so it may come from that and then I would love to see cities that would have more fruit trees and more edible plants um, for everybody to benefit from. Um, and we have schemes over here, um, Incredible Edible, which are community schemes where they grow vegetables and fruit trees in open areas, in, in urban areas, in on the side of pavements, in small parks, in corners of derelict land, where they grow things that the community can actually help themselves to. And I think the new generations of people coming through, I really hope that they will feel that they want green cities, they will need those trees for... Um, transpiration and cooling on those busy days or hot days in summer that we've got to come and that they want more greenery around them for their well-being and their health as well as to feed them and, and to improve the environment so I'm, I'm quite hopeful that some of our at least over here some of our more innovative young landscape designers who are really into urban corners which are green um, and, ed and edible so I think it can only get better because I think we're in a really low spot at the moment. So I really hope it's going to get better. Uh, I love uh, local foraging in uh, Seattle because there's so many fruit trees, but the etiquette I think is the main blocker to it being adopted because it's unclear. I only know that it's safe to take someone's fruit if there's a huge pile of it on the ground underneath the tree where I'm saying, okay, I like dogwood fruit. I know Koreans make wine out of it. I like mm -hmm. eating it fresh. Like I would like to experiment with it and it's unlikely, but also I have a neighbor who has persimmons and I'm just waiting. I'm like, are these persimmons going to get picked? I don't have any, can I, can I take them? Do I need to knock on the door? We don't have a culture where, I mean, that's what usufruct means in like, go back to Roman law, like the use of fruit. If it's not going to be used, it's fair game for anyone to take, but I'm not sure that would go over well in Seattle, which is a famously persnickety 
place, um, maybe quite passive aggressive, um, would post yeah. online about someone stealing their fruit that would otherwise go in the garbage can. I think that might be the main hang up. I don't know what it's like for, for you, but that's what it's like here. Oh, we get whinging and moaning about fruit on the pavement, making a mess. And make rats, it, yeah. Makes a mess and it gets slippery and therefore there might be some public liability if people slip over on the sidewalk because of the fruits. Hmm. Um, so there's always going to be an excuse, which is such a shame. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, over here, we get people who are quite good at putting boxes out for people to help themselves. Um, That's a good idea. Quite a nice idea. Uh, I think we always think that if it drops on the sidewalk, it's free game. You know, um, if you wanted it, you should have been out there and, <laughs> and got it before other people um, picked it off off the ground. But I think if we had more of that going on, it would be second nature. We'd know that we would, you know, it's a bit like the wild foraging in that you never take everything. You always make sure this is a sustainable harvest. And and if you, and it, wouldn't it be wonderful walking around the city and you see a load of apples, you have an apple to eat. I mean, it, it's we have so much space in our cities to be able to do that community thing. Um, and, and it all helps because those trees are going to help cool the city with the, the transpiration. So it's, it's lots of winds and their roots are going to hold the water and stop us from flooding. So we really need those those trees in our cities and, and, and the understory of shrubs and things and little corners that have got greenery that's going to hold those floodwaters back for us. I mean, it's all it's all there for us to to employ. I just hope we do it sooner rather than later. Seattle's had a lot of back and forth on this too, not to make the show too Seattle centric, but as uh, neighborhoods have been getting upzoned and they're becoming more dense, there's also been conflict with which kinds of trees can be planted and how big they can be. And in some cases, some neighborhoods, in my understanding, are allowing for many less trees and some trees are being cut down uh, in favor of density. So there, in, in some ways, at least for here, there's a tension between housing affordability and growth and density. And then on the other hand, greenery. Must there be some conflict? This is probably beyond the scope of, of your uh, expertise, maybe, but would you, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I was wandering around, you know, London yesterday, and I was actually taking photos of what I would consider to be sick trees. Mm. Uh, and I was sort of thinking, you know, I'm looking at this mature tree, doesn't look very well. And I'm thinking, how can you get this new tree established in this place? Because this tree's probably been here for 50, 60 years. Its roots have expanded before the pavements arrived, before the cars got so dense, before our air pollution kicked in. And I just, I find it quite difficult to visualize how those trees are going to get established. And which is why we come back to this lack of diversity in our tr urban trees, because there's the landscapers know that only a certain range of species can cope with air pollution, compacted soil, um, people bashing against them, tying up their bikes beside them, dogs peeing on them, you know, all of that type of stuff. You need quite a resilient tree to cope with that. And how do you get those trees from these tiny little saplings up to these lovely mature specimens that we're losing at the moment? And, and that really worries me because if we were to lose... And I was just wandering around Parliament Square looking at very sick trees. I'm thinking that will look completely different and it's never going to look the same again for another 50, 60 years, which that's what worries me about trees and the slow nature of their growth. And we're really changing our landscape, unfortunately, um, through our actions. You're going to have to um, do a campaign around the royal oak that Charles II hit up in. Um, 
And uh, I mean, there's probably a thousand pubs named the Royal Oak in the UK. So I feel like that's probably the place to start. Yeah, we, we do have quite a lot of community planting schemes and things. Um, it's it's getting those trees through those early years, because as much as we plant lots and lots of trees and everybody wants to plant a tree nowadays, and I don't think Americans are any different. You know, there's lots of schemes whereby, you know, if you do this, we can't plant a tree for you. Well, that's the easy bit. Um, what is more concerning is how many of those new trees actually get looked after and how many are going to survive through the next 10 years um, to where they get a point that they can get away and start sequestering carbon. Um, and that really annoys me, these sort of superficial ideas that planting these little saplings is really going to help. Um, and, and it's the same in cities. You know, we need to sort of have communities looking out for those trees and 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 having stewardship and ownership of those trees um, and to encourage and ensure that they do survive those early years and that the existing trees are looked after. Um, and it's difficult, but, you know, when we look at, I look at the Latin, the architecture of a city street and I see their tarmac all the way up to the trees and you're thinking, why couldn't you leave an area around them or use some of these special um, tree guards and things to keep people um, away from the tree and to allow the water to drain around the roots rather than running off into the um the, into the road and things like that so there's lots of little things we could do i'm sure which would make a world of difference and it, it just needs people action i think i think the one and done solution mindset is really attractive and it's hard to get out of even what you just said took 15 times as long to explain as just plant saplings and lots of them. The idea that you would have to do continuous monitoring and stewardship to make sure your one and done solution was carried out. Um, people have already moved on to the next thing. They don't, they don't necessarily have the attention span for it, I think. No, you're spot on on that. You know, it's too easy, isn't it? Let's all turn up a community session and we get our spades out and we plant lots of trees. Tick, tick. Um, and and I think a, a lot of the larger corporates are to blame for this as well, because they have so many schemes whereby, they, you know, we're actually in this country, we're running out of trees to plant. Um, they have been so successful. But I, I'd love to know what the percentage of success was for all of those trees. I suspect it's quite low, unfortunately. And too many of those trees are then surrounded by plastic guards, um, which have their own problem. <laughs> What will happen to the places that are currently Mediterranean under climate change uh, with regard to plant growth, horticulture, et cetera? Whoa, that is, that, that is a very good question, isn't it? That is really quite worrying. Um, I've got family who live in Spain um, and for a lot of North Europe, um, Spain is the, the area where they do a lot of the salad vegetable growing because of the Mediterranean climate, um, but their water is is retreating their reservoirs this year are quite low um, their temperatures are already um, as high as the seasonal highs would be back in, May, in April and May so they are getting warmer earlier um, they've got new pests they've got mosquitoes arriving from North Africa so it is worrying I think they will have uh, a more of a North African climate and they're going to have to adjust and it's difficult when you support millions of visitors in the way of tourists in summer um, and you also want water uh, for irrigation of crops and then I suspect those countries that are growing crops for other people might go well 
actually we need those crops for ourselves now um, because some of our other crops have failed so maybe they won't export as many crops to North, North Europe um, to supply us with um, salad veg and we had shortages in the shops in the last six months here we had shortages of lettuce which upset lots of people oh. um, um, they couldn't have their salad for lunch um, and it was all to do with some very unseasonal storms in uh, Spain which wiped out um, some crops or quite a lot of crops and it took them obviously another two months to get to that point where they will be harvesting the salad crops so again I think with drought and extreme winter weather um, it makes those types of crops far more vulnerable and if their reservoirs dry up and their soil contains less water um, they are they won't be as productive um, and they're going to have to adapt and and they will lose large areas of what is productive farmland now um, I don't think there's much they can do about it I don't know if you've seen much about this season in California but it's been you have seen it it's the snowpack there's a lake that hasn't existed in the San Joaquin Valley for a very long time that has reemerged due to <laughs> due to new water. Obviously, wildfires threaten many, many urban areas, especially in the foothills and even in like metropolitan L.A. Um, I don't know what a lot of these areas are going to be like if they get drier, but also just lots of precipitation they face too simultaneously. Both of those things, it sounds like too much to manage. I, it's, it's, it's really, I think that is what climate change is all about, this, these extremes that you're going to get a couple of good years and then all of a sudden, you know, you've got your mega drought and then you get your <laughs> huge amount of water. But apparently even the amount of water they've had this year is still not enough to replenish the aquifers. Um, oh, I didn't know and that. Is it, um, is it Lake Mead and Lake Powell still pretty low levels? Um, We're still finding bodies from old gangster days. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, it is worrying um, with the population increases in many areas where they can't support that number of people with the water. Um, it, it is going to cause migration. Um, and that is the biggest threat, I think, of our times is as areas, huge swathes of countryside become untenable for, for growing and farming and for forestry. Uh, with more wildfires and more extreme droughts um, and it's the extreme because we're not there yet I think we could cope if we if the weather started leveling out that carbon dioxide level started leveling out then the, the climate will start to settle but we're not in that yet we're still still creeping up um, and that, that that is what climate change is about unfortunately isn't it um, plus two plus three degrees for a, a sea so um, that that has big implications for growing across the country, um, and it's one of the units I, I teach on a on a, a RHS or Royal Horticultural Society agriculture a horticulture courses. The implications of climate change to food and farming, um, and our health and things like that. Um, but food and farming is difficult. Um, I have no answer, unfortunately. I don't think any of us do. Um, it's it's. Is having to change practices and looking back the only good possible way is to look back to history to see how some of those indigenous peoples in the past have dealt with growing with very little water and how they harvested they have some lovely um, ways little waffle gardens and things and how they would trap water when it did come and keep it in the ground for as long as possible so maybe we do need to look back into history 
way back, not just Victorian history, but before that, um, and learn what Indigenous peoples could do in, in drier times where they have been in the past and how they can cope. Um, but on a larger scale, it, it's quite difficult, unfortunately. Do you see gardening moving the needle in some large way, or do you see this as more of a way to educate and get people to think about larger macro issues potentially beyond their control? Um, I think it's all of those, actually. I mean, I know over here we have obviously a very keen gardening population and there is more area of our country under garden than there is under nature reserve, under national parks. Wow. So I think we have a big role to play as gardeners in the conservation of many of our species and improving biodiversity. And I do think that gardening, particularly growing food at schools, in school schemes, is a very nice introduction to people about being more self-sufficient in growing food to understand where our food comes from. So I think gardening has a very important role to teach young people um, as well as to sequester more carbon in our small plots. If everybody looked after their plots organically and helped biodiversity and harvested water and um, did something in terms of building soil carbon, then we're all actually contributing to the big effect but we're also learning how to live a more sustainable lifestyle on a small scale in our garden. So I think it, it's both ways on a larger scale and also in a small scale about teaching next generations and having more responsibility um, for our actions. You came very close to quoting Candide's One Must Cultivate One's Own Garden. And so <laughs> maybe that's a nice place to put a little cap on and with some Voltaire. Is that okay yes. with you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sally, this book's great. If you're listening to the show, you probably already garden or you're, you would, if you had the space to do so really useful book, definitely made me think I got really attracted to the pond section, by the way. I also would like to have ducks. I've seen the running ducks. Instagram knows I want running ducks somehow, and they're very, very cute. Thanks for writing something like this though. I think it's a great resource. Brilliant. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it and check my Instagram out if you want to see my ducks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I I will be doing that actually. Somehow slug I slug hunters. I, <laughs> they're what? Sorry, my slug hunters. Slug hunters, yeah, famously useful for for that. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com. Follow us on social media. And we will catch you next time.